With regard to the question you asked me, uh, my views on Khashoggi may have been absolutely positively clear. Um, and I have never been quiet about talking about human rights. The question that I'm, the reason I'm going to Saudi Arabia, though, is much broader, is to promote U.S. interest. Promote U.S. interest in a way that uh, I think we have an opportunity to uh, reassert what I think we've made a mistake of walking away from. One would assume he means the Iran nuclear deal. I'm not one of the people who believes it's a mistake, but there were plenty of people within his party who believed this trip to Israel and then to Saudi Arabia is a mistake. He wasn't going to shake any hands. He's shaking every hand uh, that that he can find. He's going to be tough regarding the uh, murder of Khashoggi. But is that really going to be a front and center subject? What is the purpose of these trips? And where is Joe Biden's foreign policy? Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. James Carafano joins us right now, leading expert in national security and foreign policy uh, challenges. He is also the vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation, also an E.W. Richardson fellow. His latest piece, Foreign Policy Strategy for a Post-Biden Era. You're already thinking ahead, James. You're already thinking when Biden is done, but we're still in, in the thick of it. Uh, let's start with a, maybe just a, a basic question. The purpose of this trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia, does it have value? What is supposed to come out of it? What is Biden going to get out of it? No, look, I don't think it has value. And normally when, you, when a president goes on the trips, there's a clear deliverable that he's seeking on, on the back end. It's very clear that they're not leaving on this trip with any any clear deliverable. And it, it, like much like the Summit of the Americas and the, the Summit for Democracies, it's one of these things that maybe they had on the calendar and they thought, well, when we get there, there'd be something to do. And then it turns out they've done such a terrible job laying it up there isn't. But what this is, which does, is this is illustrative of Biden's kind of aimless, reactive, disengaging um, foreign policy. And, and why I say that particularly with this trip is it, there's, there's this really this inability to really be decisive because, as you pointed out, there, there are elements in his own party that would throw Israel into the sea, um, that would embrace the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and you know, to have a radically different foreign policy than, than most of America would want. And, and, and he, said, he said things verbally on this trip. You know, that it's opposite like that. Well, we have to engage with Saudi Arabia. Oh, Israel's our most important ally. But he hasn't disengaged from any of their underlying policies. So, so for example, he says, well, we embrace the two-state solution. Well, you know, so the two-state solution is the idea that Palestinians have a state and then Colorado to Israel and Israel have a state. Now, what, what that actually means is the Palestinian Authority, which is corrupt, which is in bed with Hamas and terrorists and Iran— gets to decide the pace of relations in the Middle East. And, of course, their answer is they have no interest in peace or progress because they would lose money, right? And so nothing happens. And, and, and that's why Trump broke that Gordian knot. And he said, look, we're not going to tie this two-state solution to engaging in the Middle East, and we made this enormous progress. 
And, and what does Biden do? He goes, well, I embrace the two-state solution. All that means is he's lapsing back into a failed policy because he's got all these people in, 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 in his party that actually like these people that love Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood and everything else. So you cannot serve two masters. But we see the same thing on climate, right? You know, at the, at the one hand, he's, in, you know, he's never letting go of all this green stuff and everything else, and he's, but he's letting oil out of the stockpile and trying to buy oil from Venezuela. You know, he's trying to get the price of gas down without abandoning the green agenda, which says we don't want oil and gas. Um, the same thing on human rights. He says, I embrace human rights. Well, this is completely feckless. He's, he's talking to Venezuela, human rights abusers. He's engaging with Cuba, human rights abusers. He's really done nothing about the Uyghurs, human rights abusers. Um, they're, they're massive. Ma- Iran is, has a horrific record on human rights. And right. what's his response? Let's engage with Iran and give them and a bunch of money. So the Iran he, he conversation, sir. The Iran conversation is the one that's most fascinating. Talking to James Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. Uh, it is, it was Barack Obama's desire to create some kind of peace with with Iran, and so therefore we got the Iran nuclear deal, which had all the power of a treaty without actually going through the treaty process, really limiting we the people from our elected representatives being able to have a say uh, on this. It was President Trump that did away with this, because in my view, it clearly led uh, Iran an easier road down towards getting a, a nuclear weapon. Joe Biden wants this back. Where is the real divide between, we'll say Republicans and Democrats, on this deal, and are we better off having Saudi Arabia as a friend or as a partner in some kind of deal? Or is there any value to trying to create that with Iran? Can it be done? Well, I think the answer is demonstrably no. I mean, the, 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 the Obama experiment was we'll engage the Iranians, give them everything they want. And as a result of that, they'll essentially, you know, kind of calm down in the region. And what happened was we engaged with the Iranians, we gave them everything they want, and they demonstrably became more aggressive in the region. They upped support for the Houthi war in Yemen. They're, they're digging in, destabilizing Iraq. They were, they were in Syria. They were going after Israel. So engaging Iran, just like you know, letting, letting the, uh, the prisoners out of the cage, they, they just got, they got more aggressive. You know, in, in, in contrast to that, what Trump did in maximum pressure was he denied them a lot of resources, put a lot of pressure on them, and, and predictably the Iranians became less aggressive um, uh, and more risk-averse because the more pressure you put on them, the more they worry about controlling the regime, the more they worry about controlling the regime and the country, the less risk-averse they get in foreign affairs. And so what does Biden do? I mean, demonstrably, the Obama plan failed. Demonstrably, the Trump plan worked. And Biden comes in and reflexively goes back to the Obama plan. And what happens? We see a more aggressive Iran. They're more aggressive in uh, Yemen. They're more aggressive in Syria. They're more aggressive in Iraq. Uh, they're greater danger to Israel and, and other neighbors. And, 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 what, and now they're, they're openly flaunting their partnership with Russia. In the, while everybody else in the world is condemning and isolating the Russians, the Iranians are openly boasting of their ties with Russia. In the whole ob- objective of the Abraham Accords, as uh, Jeff Dunnitz wrote about it at lidblog.com, 
instead of being engaged in land for peace, it engages the idea of peace for peace. I thought that was a very good way to, to describe uh, the, the situation. Allow nations to normalize relations with Israel, allow them to engage in trade, engage in tourism, and build up relationships from there, and from there, other things can blossom and, and, and grow. None of this happened without a wink and a nod and an okay from Saudi Arabia. I think I'm not right. off base by stating such a thing. So Saudi Arabia clearly was okay with these Abraham Accords before they, they went forward. Right. Now that they are in place and now that we see trade with the UAE and some of these other nations, Iran certainly does seem more desperate. That would seem time to have Iran on the ropes as opposed to further reaching out to them. How does the guy with 40 plus years of the best foreign policy experience ever keep making these mistakes? What is the ideology that is so mistaken within him and, the, as I would see it, the progressive left? Well, because, because look, this is essentially the Obama administration. Everybody, including Biden, was in the Obama administration, and they just reflexively are going back to Obama policies, which are heavily influenced by the left of their party, which hate Israel, which embrace the Muslim Brotherhood, which really don't have a problem with Islamist extremists, uh, and think that turning the region over to them would work out just fine. So that's, that's exactly why we are where we are. Look, what the Abraham Accords did was solve really a, an intractable problem for the United States that we've never been able to solve since the end of World War II, which is, look, the Middle East matters. It is important. It's in the middle of everything. It matters for oil. It matters for ocean transport. It matters for sea transport, finance, migration patterns. It is a part of the world which, if it is not at peace, creates problems for everybody else in the world. So wanting that part of the world to not be a dumpster fire is actually a, a good thing for the United States. And the way we've tried to address that literally for decades is we either jump in with the 82nd Airborne in two feet and try to fix all the problems, or we try to run away and do nothing and hope it doesn't blow up. And so somewhere between what... Um, Bush tried to do in the Iraq war and what Obama tried to do, walk away and do nothing. Donald Trump came and said, you know, there is a smart middle way here. And it was the Abraham Accords. And it was the idea that if we abandon this notion that everything, everything in the Middle East has to stand still until the Palestinians get what we want, and we create a process of normalization between the Arab states and Israel, here's what will happen. One is you'll have economic integration because they each bring things to the table in the region, which will help with the most critical issue, which is job growth and prosperity for a wide swath of people. That economic integration is also going to fuel diplomatic immigration, and it's going to fuel security cooperation. And that's going to do two things. One is it's going to solve the endemic problems of the region and the lack of development of good governance, of economic prosperity, um, of, better, of better physical security for the people. The second thing is it's going to, it's going to create a core of states which have one common interest which is having Iran come in and destabilize and take over the region is not a good idea. And then you have a partner for the United States, much, not like NATO, but in, but in a similar way, that have a vested interest in peace and security in the region. So then the United States doesn't have to either run away and do nothing, and we don't have to do it all ourselves. Instead, we have partners on the ground who have a vested interest that we can work with. And this is a sustainable security, economic, diplomatic par partnership that could last for decades. Before I, before I let you go,
I, yeah. I, I wanted to, because I'm up a little bit against uh, time, I wanted to talk about Yair Lapid, who is the prime minister. Of course, you had the bit of shuffling right. with Naftali Bennett saying we're going to uh, abandon this government and they're once again going to engage an election. You had this power-sharing agreement with uh, Lapid. He now uh, takes over. Uh, the What is upcoming for Israeli elections. Is this uh, Lapid's race to lose? And what kind of of Politico is he? Is there an opening here for Benjamin Netanyahu of Likud uh, to come back and, and take power? What does that mean for the region and some of these relationships uh, vis-a-vis the Abraham Accords and relationships with the United States? I, I think Netanyahu's going to win. I mean, the only thing in holding the coalition together was getting Netanyahu out. And what they found is, is they can't they can't govern efficiently. And so I think people will, you know, my, my guess is people will realize Netanyahu is the only practical option. He'll come back in charge, um, which also largely makes this, this trip, again, kind of a nothing burger, because it's very likely nothing that the two sides can agree on that's going to last in a few months. And, and, and if the president thinks that somehow in this trip he's going to salvage the Iran deal, he is unbelievably stupid. Yes, but he is. And I think that's well, I think that's part of the problem. Yes, it's it's this least, constant ideology over reality. Yeah, you know what you know what uh, Gates said that you know he, Biden all, you know, for forty years never made a right call, and, and you know he's continued to demonstrate amazing consistency. James J. Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy, the E.W. Richardson Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. I always appreciate you taking the time to be with us, sir. We've got more coming up, guys. I'm Tony Katz.